Hello, Les Raymond here with the Mindful Movement. Whether you are about to enjoy one of Sarah's beautiful meditations or dive into a podcast interview, I would like to remind our community that the best way to support the Mindful Movement is to support the companies that make this happen. Sarah and I are very picky about the companies we choose to work with, and we are grateful to have the relationships we have and to share them with our listeners. You can learn more about our affiliates through our website by clicking on the Favorites tab. We are excited to have recently added Sunlighten as an affiliate. They make state-of-the-art infrared saunas, and their founder, Connie, came on for a recent interview if you would like to listen. Our Sunlighten sauna has been a family favorite for over a decade. Some of our most popular affiliates are the grounding mats from Ultimate Longevity, which we sleep on every night, and the Apollo Neuro, which Sarah is now wearing daily to help manage stress. When you support these brands, you in turn are supporting the mindful movement and helping Sarah and I continue to devote our time to this passion. Whether you check out these companies or not, I just want to say thanks again and reiterate how grateful Sarah and I both are for all of the support over the years. I hope you enjoy the episode. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, and welcome to the Mindful Movement Podcast. I'm your host, Les Raymond. Thanks for tuning in today for another episode. I had the pleasure of speaking with Troy Grant from Beyond Rhetoric today. This is Troy's second time on the podcast. And it was great to reconnect with them. Uh, if you haven't listened to the first episode that we did, it was a couple years ago. It was a terrific conversation about the service that Troy and his organization provides. Very inspiring stuff. I uh, encourage you to check that out. And I hope you enjoy today's round two. Troy Grant, thanks for coming back for round two on the Mindful Movement podcast. Of course, man. Thanks for inviting me. So it's funny, we met initially at a farmer's market and I haven't been going to that farmer's market. And then um, I happened to go there yesterday, saw you again, and we got to catch up a little bit. And as soon as we started talking, I was like, this is really important. Let's turn on the mic for this and do a round two. And this is like the quickest turnaround I've done from scheduling a podcast to, uh, to creating one, one day. Wow. I know exactly. And when I said to you, when you said, when can we schedule? I was thinking about my hectic schedule and I was thinking, well, tomorrow is really the only time that I have free. And uh, I was like, let's do tomorrow. And you looked at me like, really? <laughs> tomorrow? And so I'm glad we're able to have it because of your initiative. So thank well, you. I'm glad we can make it work. Uh, thank you for making the time. Oh, indeed. You. Uh, so for the listeners, uh, you've been on before uh, when we were pretty young podcasters couple of years back and it was um, a really enjoyable conversation for me and I want to get people caught up that haven't listened to that without spending you know as much time on the how you got to what you're doing but you are the founder of Beyond Rhetoric mm -hmm. uh, which is a nonprofit organization that works uh, with kids at the Maryland Department of Juvenile Services yes and uh, you basically help bring together volunteers with, I guess, at-risk youth to mentor and lead and create opportunities and develop community. 
and um it's inspiring it's important it's real nice. it's yes. like very real yes it's local and um i'm grateful that people like you are out there doing this yeah. and yeah, i am honored to be a, a conduit for your message tell us a little bit more about what beyond rhetoric is and what brought you to that yeah so so this will be kind of like a recap of our first right discussion I won't be as long-winded though, <laughs> right? So, so Beyond Rhetoric is a nonprofit. So, you know, for those for those that know the letters and numbering, it's a 501c3. But it's also a public charity, right? According to the IRS, which is a 509a2. So if people are looking for a nonprofit or a public charity, we are that, right? We're young, right? So many people haven't heard of us because we're young. We were established in 2020 during the pandemic. And our mission and our goal is to simply serve youth in detention. And what that means is we go in and we try to move beyond the rhetoric, beyond the talk, and we go in and we serve them by being next to them, by being close, by spending time, by letting them know they're important, by being in their presence. You know, what's interesting is we don't feel we have to preach to them or, you know, lecture or scold or try to give them our adult wisdom in order for them to really um, to do well in our in our time there. We just feel like we need to spend time. You know, Brian Stevenson uh, was a person who inspired this work. Uh, I read a book in 2019 called Just Mercy. And it blew me away. And that was about a, a, you know, a guy who was at Harvard Law School. He was disenchanted with the overall aims and goals of the school. And it's like, what am I going to really do with my life? Someone suggested he goes to Alabama to spend time um, helping get innocent people off of death row. And I read that book and it changed my life. And the movie came out that same year in the, in the I think, the winter of uh, 2019. And so essentially, in a nutshell, Brian Stevenson believes that we have to get proximate to people in need, right? We have to wrap our arms around them and affirm their humanity and dignity. And that proximity is what Beyond Rhetoric is all about. Stop talking, right? That's the rhetoric piece. And serve. Just spend time with youth. You know, anyone can argue politics. They can argue a lot of things. But what they can't argue is the fact that you're sitting in front of a youth, you're spending time. And the youth will, will not be able to deny that, right? Many times we go in less. Um, the, at first, the students or the youth, I call them students because I'm an educator. The youth want to know, like, are we paid? And we're not. This is an all-volunteer organization, even after three years. And so that gives them, and they love the fact that we're not paid because it, it means something to them, the fact that we're spending time with them. So that's essentially what it is. You know, we go in and we spend time. So when I meet people, what I say to them is, hey, you know, what are you good at? Or what do you like doing? Or what fires you up? And they say it. And then I go, can you do that with youth for one hour a week in detention? And that's really how it starts. Um, and that's how the discussion gets started. And so that's beyond rhetoric in a nutshell. That's great. It's something you just said to affirm their humanity and dignity. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds really important for someone that's had a tough go at it 
and they're in those like developing years. I mean, these are generally uh, on the majority, I would say young teenagers, young yes, to teenagers. Absolutely. So they're, you know, I would say median around 15 or 16 from, from our experience. Um, but from 18 down to 14, um, our kids, we spend time with, I've spent time with kids that are, um, in middle school, um, older middle schoolers, right. Probably have stayed back a couple of times, but I've spent time with kids in middle school and, you know, just spending time with them. And you're right. Affirming their humanity is important because, you know, our society tends to, especially with our criminal justice system, it tends to separate. It tends to alienate and exclude. And by doing that, you know, the message that one receives and one being the youth is that they're really not that important, right? That they're, they're otherized, right? There's something else. And so by spending time with them, that contradicts that concept. Because as I'm looking them in the face, if I'm sitting down playing a game of chess with you and I'm saying, oh, wow, that was a good move. Just simply, that was a good move. Or the fact that I'm sitting down with you, right, giving you my time, um, lets you know it sends the message that you're important. And it's not just chess. You know, the, when we have we have a basketball program. So when Marcellus Clement is playing basketball with the youth, and he's a principal, right, of a middle school. So, but he gives up his time to go and pay, play basketball with the youth. He's letting them know they're important. And they want to know, why do you come here? They always want to know. And if it's just because you're important, right, then they get that and they hopefully we can wrap our arms around them so that when they come back to the community, they feel like they're a part of something greater um, and that they're one mistake. Brian Stevenson says that we shouldn't be judged, right, by our, our one mistake, right? One decision shouldn't really be our final, shouldn't be the death knell. So, Yeah. Yeah, now we're we live in a society. I mean, especially if you see on like social media how uh the masses will try to uh, identify someone with the the worst moment of their life. Oh yeah. Oh, 100%. 100%. And that has an effect on um you know, I just think of that age. I'm thinking about when I was that age and how every other day I was doing something that eventually would be considered like regrettable. Mm -hmm. And, oh, yeah. uh, you know, and I had it, I had it good. Like I got punished, but it didn't land me in a place where I felt um, otherized that I, that I remember. Uh, and I wonder like at this age, um, I, I would assume that trauma plays a big role in some of the events, like the unluckiness that gets a, a kid in a juvenile detention center. Mm -hmm. um, what, how do I say this? What are the chances that a, a child that's at that age recognizes that, that how they might've been affected by their circumstances and it's not just like uh, their fault in a way. Um, like I, I assume a lot of kids feel like they kind of deserve to be there or, or something like, are there at that age, are kids connecting the dots of their circumstances growing up and the outcome that they find themselves in at that moment? Mm, that's a great question. So I would say it's a very complex, right? Question. 
and answer and to actually live through it. Like, so, so when we go in to the detention centers weekly, right, we spend time with a, with a number of youth, some who are on the spectrum of the, the higher, you know what, I, I did some pretty messed up things and I'll never do it again. Others who are not, you know, once, so there are different levels to the, to the detention centers, right? We call them detention centers, detention centers as a generic term, but they're different levels. There's really three levels in the state of Maryland that we interact with. There's what you call the typical detention center. That's for kids who are, who haven't been adjudicated yet. They have not gone through the court system. They're waiting to be tried. But then there's a, a couple other branches. There's something called, um, and that's typically 30 to 90 days. Then there's something called community detention. So they're in there for 30. And, and in fact, Les, um, sadly, I've interacted with kids who've been in that pattern for well over a year. Mm-hmm. And so I go in every, you know, and I was, oh, my court case hasn't come up yet, right? But for over a year, I've played chess with the same individuals, right? Um, then there's another uh, category called community detention. And what community detention is, is they may give the, the youth an ankle bracelet and they put the ankle bracelet on the youth and they say, your crimes aren't so severe that you can't still engage with the community. So you can go to school and you can work, but every evening, it's called the evening reporting center, you need to report at a certain time. And then we spend time with you and then we drive you home on a bus and we drop you off, pick you up and we drop you off. And so that's the evening reporting center, right? And then finally, there's what they call the treatment centers, right? Treatment center is when you have been quote unquote convicted, right? You've been considered guilty. And with juvenile detention, which is different from, or with the juvenile system, which is different from the adult system, is juveniles are still considered, you know, that, that they can be rehabilitated. With adults, that's not the goal of the criminal justice system to rehabilitate right? Just lock them up. So with juveniles, they have treatment centers to address the areas that the youth may be struggling with. So let's say they sold drugs. Then they would go to a treatment center that teaches and instructs about drugs. Um, Let's say it was a a sexual crime. Then they would go to a treatment center for that. Um, And those are for long, long stints. You know, that's more than 90 days plus, right? It depends on the the, uh, conviction. So when we engage with youth, some youth have that, right? Like, wow, right? I'm a victim of my circumstances. But that takes a lot of complex thinking, right? Um, A lot of the youth just blame other people, right? Which doesn't take a lot of complex thinking. In fact, that's kind of like the mature reaction, right? Right? It's not my fault, right? It's it's their fault. Um, And then some, though, are on that lower spectrum. Some just don't know that they're caught in this web, this very complicated web that different actions, right, influence. You know, one of the things that happen um, whenever I play chess, I can always tell the type of, you know, direction or angle I need to go in with a youth based on how they respond to a loss. There are youth who, when they lose, they smile. And they go, yo, that was really cool. Because they're they're really connecting with the fact they're seeing the whole thing and they appreciate how they lost, right? Or how they won. 
Um, and every year a youth beats me in chess that I go in. They're, these kids are smart. And then there are there are the youth who their immediate reaction is, yo, you cheat. <laughs> and it's typically the same type, you know, when, when I interact with these youth, it's like, what do you mean? Man, you cheat, man. I won't play this no more. And it's like, dude, and now I'm, you know, I'm now I'm accustomed to saying you can't just because you lost the game doesn't mean that the game was rigged. You have to learn the game. You have to get better at the game. And then I'm, I'll always have somebody. I said, he used to lose all the time. And I point to another youth in the, you know, in the, in the quote unquote um, area in the cell. And I say, he used to lose all the time. Guess what? He's better now. Because he learned the game, bro. If you don't learn the game, you will be a victim and you always think that you're a victim. And that parlays to life, right? So, um, but I don't know if the majority look at themselves, you know, complexly and say, you know, and say, you know what? I think the reason why I'm this way is because my parent or because, you know, my, my environment. Had I right. not been around, you know what I mean? And so the self-awareness that's required, I would just think it it's such a long shot to have enough at that age group. So you see these parallels of the level of self-awareness they have or lack thereof that lets them play the victim in like the game of life just manifests in all these little aspects, such as like a chess game where right. it's not their fault. But I mean, most people, I mean, I'm 40. Uh, 46 and i don't think i began to have self-awareness to see some of those things so i was in my 30s so right. like right how is it expected so is it only in the treatment side of those like three uh categories where a kid can be educated of those things if they're in that system yeah, no. So the goal is to educate them. I watch. So we, we're not a part of the Department of Juvenile Services, right? right? But so what I do is I watch, right? Whenever I go in and I interact with all three of those systems. Um, But when I watch, I watch each group and the adults, the residential advisors, um, spend time with them trying to infuse, right? These life lessons, trying to infuse the encouragement and for them not to be so down on themselves, but you're right. You know, um, at a young age, what do they say? The prefrontal cortex doesn't, doesn't really develop until like age 25. So here we are expecting them to be able to make these decisions and even logically think, think through, you know, you know, actions of the past and decisions of the past. And it is just a difficult thing. So yes, they try to not only in the treatment centers, but also in the evening reporting centers and also in the detention centers. They, you know, what I'm really impressed by is sometimes they see the residential advisors, they have to have what they call a group. And they'll say, let's circle up, circle up. And sometimes I go there to play chess and they'll go, oh, we're having a group. Can you give us like 10 minutes? I'm just, sure. And I'll just go to another, you know, uh, unit and I'll spend time with them and I'll come back. And what they do in that time is they talk accountability. They go, hey, guys, yesterday, you know, we, we got all our, you know, activities cut out. And you know what? If you guys keep doing what you're doing and then you'll have a youth step up and say, yeah, man, that was some nonsense. I don't mind that we play around, but some of you guys play too much. And so what I can see is that there are levels of, you know, accountability, levels of, you know, responsibility. 
But you know, uh, Les, I'll share a story with you. I don't know if I shared this with you before, but um, when I was 16, I almost, I could have gone to jail and my life would be different. It's part of the reason why I do what I do is because I don't really see a huge distinction between me and these youth. I just see it's a matter of circumstances, right? Um, and also sometimes I joke with people and I say, hey, you know, you pick the right parents. When they brag about who they are, they brag about their accomplishments. Hey, you, you, you pick the right parents, right? Um, facetiously making the point that sometimes it's just a lottery, right? So when I was 16, so I was, I was on probation by the age of 12 because I used to steal and do all kinds of crazy things when I lived with my dad. I lived with my dad for two years in Providence, Rhode Island. So um, when I was 16, I was living with my mom and living with my mom, I started working at Exxon and I was a gas attendant and I learned how to steal. I would, <laughs> this is, you know, for all your listeners out there, beware, right? So what I would do is I was very strategic in my, you know, my thievery. So one of the things I would do is I would pretend that I was putting oil in your, in your car. I would, you know, person would come up and they go, hey, do I need oil? And I would, you know, put in the, the stick and I would, you know, you know, pull, pull it halfway and I would erase some of the oil. Let's say it was full. I would take my, you know, my, my paper and push it down to where it looked like half. I said, and I would show them the stick. Yeah, you, 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 you need, you need a quart. And then they would pay me meanwhile. And then I would pretend to, to give them a quart of oil. Because prior to them coming, I would put a fake empty court, right, on the stand <laughs> so that they would see me grabbing. This is how this is how conniving it was. They would see me grabbing the court and then I would throw it less, throw it. This is age 16. So they can hear the empty court of oil. Oh, my. To this, and then I would show them the new stick here. It's full. Right. Um and so remember, this is back in the late 1980s, right? Um, so that was one thing. But how I almost got caught is I would also uh, rig numbers. So if you look at a gas tank, what you'll see is a bunch of numbers. Those numbers correspond to gallons. So what I would do is I would learn to change those gallons. There was a guy who came in late every single Sunday morning. I would work late. He would come in Sunday morning. When he came in Sunday morning, he didn't have the time to read the tank. Before you come in and before you leave, you're supposed to read the tank. Write those numbers down. Those numbers correspond with money. Because, of course, if you started with 100 gallons and you pumped 50, and let's say it was $1 a gallon, you know, way back in the day, then you should have $50 in your, right, in your cashier's box, right? Am I going too fast? And so, so... I would, I knew that those numbers corresponded with gallons and those gallons corresponded with money. This is at age 16, right? New Haven, Connecticut. So the guy would come in late. And when he did, he would always go, man, my man, my man, yo, bro, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Can I just use your numbers? And after the first time I'm, I thought, sure, you can use my numbers. Then I thought, wait a second. So what I started doing was changing the numbers. So it looked like I pumped less and he pumped more. Meanwhile, I would take the difference in cash. I was doing this less for several weeks. I pocketed close to $1,000. As a 16-year-old, that's a lot of money. And I'll never get one night. This is where the parenting comes in. Remember, I lived with my dad for two years. 
what my dad used to say to me when I was getting in trouble in Providence, Rhode Island on probation, he said, he used to say like Bonnie and Clyde, you can keep doing it, but you will get caught. And I just ignored him at age 12. And he would say to me, Troy, like Bonnie and Clyde, you can keep doing it, but you will get caught. So at age 16, I'm getting ready to do my thing. It's a Saturday night. And that, that line popped in my head from, from I don't know where. And I started getting afraid. And I'm like, why am I afraid right now? And I'm, I just ignored it. But it kept coming back, Les. Like Bonnie and Clyde, you can keep doing it, but you will get caught. So it freaked me out so much that I said, okay, I'm not going to not steal, <laughs> right? Because this, this gig is getting good. What I'm going to do is I'm going to create two pieces of paper one with the actual numbers and one with the fake numbers. And if he comes in on time, then I'm gonna use the actual numbers. Lo and behold, that guy came in on time the next morning. I gave him the paper with the real numbers. I folded up the other one, put it in my pocket and we, we parted ways. The next morning I came to pick up my check. I'll never forget the guy, my boss, his name is Kevin. He goes, how's it going? I said, things are going well. He says, good, how's school? I told him, and he looked at me and he said, if you don't tell me how you've been stealing, we're gonna, we're gonna have you uh, leaving here in handcuffs today. I was mortified. And of course, I was, a, I was a very good liar. So I said, what are you talking about? He goes, we know you've been stealing and last night we had the cameras on you. If you would have stolen last night, you'd have been out, you'd have been out here in handcuffs. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm, you know, I'm a really good employee. I don't know why other people's shifts are, because he told me about other people's shifts. I don't know why their shifts are coming up short, blah, 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 blah. And he gave me my check and he was like, get out of here, you're fired. And I walked away and I thought, had my dad not said those words to me, I would have went to jail as a 16 year old. I would have been in, in detention. I would not have been able to go to the United States Air Force. The Air Force gave me the GI Bill. I wouldn't have been able to have the GI Bill to pay for college. I wouldn't have been able. There's so many ripple effects from that. But um, did I pick the right father? I don't know. You're not going to believe this. Um, it, this is going to make me want to sell stock in Exxon. But <laughs> when I was 17, I worked at Exxon and I was stealing. <laughs> Is this a support group? <laughs> I had a, yeah, this podcast is going a different way. I had a system. I had a, and I remember getting caught stealing when I was young once, like 13, 14, some stupid thing at the grocery store and got caught. And it just makes me wonder like, what a fine line between right. getting a slap on the wrist and, and maybe ending up in a facility where it's really hard to kind of claw your way back. Right. Um, I mean, um, it makes me think of just kind of how privileged I am. Right. But um, yeah, I was I was stealing. I was working at a cashier and some drug addict. Granted, I was a drug addict at the time, too, but like a heavier drug addict that was yeah. uh, like my mentor there was like teaching me how to how to steal by memorizing the certain costs of like routine goods and keep mm -hmm. a tally. Yeah. And um, and you'd pick up like an extra 20 or $40 a shift. Right. Which, right. you know, I was 17. It's crazy. And then I started stealing cartons of cigarettes. Right. And I didn't have a car. I would store them in my friend's car and we would sell them and share the profits. We would sell cartons of cigarettes for $8 in the high school parking lot. Wow. Not a pack of cigarettes <laughs> yeah. so for the listeners, but this is back in, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, around 93 or something. Carton of cigarettes. I think they were typically like $20 and we sold yeah. them for eight. Yeah. So it was like yeah. an easy sale. Right, right, right. Yeah. But um, eventually also got caught 
one day and I guess at this point, really grateful that I got caught. Right. Oh, 100%. Very grateful that I got caught and it cost me and I acted like I didn't do anything wrong, but they took out the exact amount I took like that week or something. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, $100 even or something. They took it out on my last paycheck. Right, right. And, um, you know, I and deep down, like I couldn't get mad because I was like, right, exactly. You know, this is this is what I needed. Uh, right. I don't know if I thought of it that way, but I there felt like a a clean walk away. Like I wasn't right. mad that they right. took it out of my paycheck. It right, felt exactly. like uh, I got some closure. But man, what are the chances that we both were working at Exxon and thieving? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I know it's and you know and, and we both got off. I should say. Yeah. Where other kids don't, they get caught up in the system and then they stay there. Right. And it's one thing after the other. So, you know, I'm grateful. I'm really grateful. But at the time, did I, you know, were I to go to detention, would I have been reflective? I don't know. Maybe I would have. Maybe I would have doubled down. Right. And so what's interesting is when I do, you know, and I don't, your listeners may not know this, but, you know, since that time, I'm, you know, I'm really perceived as a very accomplished person. Right. So I got my bachelor's degree, graduated magna cum laude from City University of New York. I went to Johns Hopkins for a master's of arts and teaching. Um, I got my PhD at UMBC um, in language, literacy and culture. Um, I've done things less like um, I think I'm the only person you can fact check this who's ever recited the United States uh, Constitution from memory. And I did it in public. Um, Last time I did it in the most celebrated time was at the Constitution Center in Philadelphia. I gave everybody a copy of the Constitution. I said, check me. It took me over an hour to do. So I share all that to say that most people, when they look at my resume, they see that, oh, wow, this guy's pretty accomplished. But that could have all been different. You know, my brother died in prison, right? So um, his life took a different turn. I don't know why my life didn't take a different turn. Uh, but I'm very grateful. And that's part of the reason why I do what I do. That's interesting. Um, can I double click the story about your brother a little bit? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, mm-hmm. Is he older or younger? He was a year and a half older than me. And you grew up in the same household, same parents? or Same household, same parents, slept in the same bed, took baths together. We were, you know, freaking frack. What do you attribute the the difference? That's a great question. And I can tell you when he died um, in 1995, as my only brother, I remember crying. You know, it's interesting. I just took a road trip with my son and I was telling him about the times that daddy cried. And he looked at me and he was like, you cried? (laughs) I was like, yes, dude, we cried. Men cry. So I remember crying in 1995, leaving the, you know, the penitentiary where he was, he died in prison. And I remember crying at the time I was a Christian. Unless I remember asking God why, right? I remember saying two things. One, why did you let me get so close to him towards the end of his life so that this would hurt so much, right? Because we were estranged for a couple of years because we went to prison. He blamed everybody except himself. And so we didn't talk a lot because he would say, it's your fault and you should send me this and you should send me that. I'm like, I'm not, dude, I'm not sending you Reebok pumps in prison, bro. I'm just not doing it. 
And so, so there was a fall. Yeah. And that was a big thing back then. And, but those were, you know, and that was a time. So we got closer when I found out that he had HIV and he was dying because a guy in prison wrote me. He says, I know you and your brother are close. You need to resolve some stuff because your brother is dying. And I didn't know that. So, so then we got closer, but then of course, when he died, it hurt. But then I asked God, why, why do I get to live? And he dies. I don't know why Alan did the things he did. You know, when we look back on his life and I talked to the family members, they would say all the things that he did. And I'm thinking he did that. You know, I know he sold drugs, right? I know that he, I remember when he got out of prison or jail one time when he was a teenager, he was walking down the street a couple of days after he, he got out and he had a gun. He was holding a shotgun, going to sell it. And I'm thinking, you just got out of jail. Are you kidding me? And so I don't know what made him do the things that he did. I can say he's the one that introduced me to stealing. The first time I stole was him saying, hey, Troy, so you like bubble gum, right? And I'm like, yeah, I was probably eight, okay, or nine. He goes, there's these cars, right? And if you steal it, I'm going to be the lookout and you get the bubble gum and I'm going to take the cards because I can trade the cards with other people. And there I was doing, I got caught and he did not, he did not say, Hey, I put, I put Troy up to it. So he had a lot of challenges less that I don't know. Same mom, same dad, same household. And yet he were your parents split up when you were young at all? Or yes. What, yes. How, how old were you guys when that happened? So I was still an infant when they divorced oh, okay. yes so he had to be probably a little over one or something no okay. more than two years old because i wonder about that like um you know learning about stress a lot and trauma mm -hmm. over the last several years the the individual variability in the response and the, like the threshold and the tolerance to different stresses is uh is so like it's such a vast spectrum of variability mm -hmm. and it, it makes me wonder like if you have two people same environment really same influences um they could respond like you know i don't know if it could happen at that age but i think about me i was four or five when my parents uh separated and i could imagine that if i had a, a sibling close in age which i i did have a couple sisters um that the feeling that one would that one child would have given that situation and the way that that um like it forms beliefs about them because i think from my understanding we we form beliefs about ourselves at a pretty early age mm -hmm. all subconsciously you know we don't have the self-awareness as you alluded to we don't have the prefrontal cortex developed for it but whereas one might feel like a lack of worthiness because the parent left and you feel like you're not worthy of their love. If you were, they'd stick around and you form beliefs about yourself based on that, which lead to behaviors and patterns and activities that, right. you know, you treat yourself as an adult that way deserve, you know, that you deserve that to be that. Whereas the sibling might just interpret the scenario differently create exactly. a different set of neurotransmitter like a different mm -hmm. set of yeah. chemicals in the in the brain um different perspectives and right. different beliefs that could be very different it could be like um 
I'm going to be a, you know, this is going to turn me into a superhero right, because right. I'm going to be so nimble. I could, um, you know, be this for my mom and over here, I could be this for my dad. And I, right. and like have a total different response, even right. though, and, you know, and maybe there's even like nutritional components that I heard um, somebody talk about how when a woman gives birth, it's so depleting of energy and resources and nutrients mm -hmm. that in the ideal scenario, like you breastfeed for a couple years while you're building up, you're repleting your nutritional mm -hmm. status yeah. so that you're ready to have another child. Wow. And if somebody rushes that or they don't have good nutritional status, then the next child is like um, behind the ball a little bit. Hmm. So the way their brain might develop, not necessarily worse, but differently, because it's a different set of nutrient status from the mother, because let's say they didn't have two years of abundance food and nutrition to like regroup the resources. Hmm. There's like all these weird variables that I think could affect why you could have two kids in the same exactly. household, same environment with very different outcomes. I assume now that you're pretty happy that you were able to reconnect with them before yes. he passed. Oh, 100%. And I've kept all the letters, even the ones where he's cursing me out and <laughs> calling me all kinds of names. Um, yes. I mean, we're going to what you're saying. Yeah. And this goes to like individuality and personality, right? Like, so, you know, some people, I think with the, you know, some psychologists call it post-traumatic growth. Some people respond in a very positive way after something bad has happened to them, right? Whereas others, they collapse, right? And they implode. And so what's to say it's supposed to it will happen to one person and not another? And that's the great mystery of life. And this is what should keep us all humble, right? Because I don't know. You know, one of the things that I remember my brother doing um, early on, maybe at age seven or so, um, I was seven or eight. I'll never forget one day we were walking down the street and my brother points, he points to the ground and he goes, he's called me Choi, right? He didn't pronounce T-R-O-Y, he pronounces C-H-O-I, right? Hey, Choi, Choi. And he was like, you see the money? You see the money? I found it, right? I found it, right? And what he was doing at age eight or nine, right? Because he's a year and a half older than me. What he was doing was trying to prime me to corroborate later that he found money on the ground. But what had happened is he had stolen the money from my mother's purse. And he threw it when I wasn't looking, only so I can, you know, you know, see it from at a distance and go, oh, yeah, you did. Wow, look at that money over there. But later, Les, I thought, how, how can he steal from mommy? Like, I could never steal from mommy. Now, I don't think that way to think that I'm better. But what it does is it makes me wonder, well, why did I not have the capacity to steal from mommy? And why did he have that capacity? Right. And so that in my spiritual journey, it kind of freaks me out because I could have been born with that capacity. Right. But I wasn't, and I don't know why. So hopefully this should keep us humble and keep us serving. Hmm. I, I want to switch gears a little bit. I know we could talk forever about this um, 
childhood stuff and the work that you do. I know we talked a lot about the work you do in the the first episode that I'll link to. I do like that post-traumatic growth um, phrase. I'm going to dwell on, I'm going to dwell on that in my mind for a little bit. Um, so I ran into you yesterday mm-hmm. and there was something <laughs> that you kind of surprised me that you shared. I don't know if we talked about it on the podcast or if it was outside of the podcast, but um, you know, in the mindful movement, we talk a lot about breath over the years and <laughs> I don't know how it came up that you were having some like respiratory issues or something, but I, yeah. I love to hear. And, um, I get personally inspired by anytime somebody like heals mm-hmm. from anything like self or like improves their health and becomes their own advocate, does the work, creates change. And I learn yeah. a lot from others that talk about their journeys um, you were eager to tell me that you've been breathing through your nose. <laughs> I guess um, you weren't when we met, last met. Right. I could be quite the salesman on, on yeah. nose breathing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yo, so this funny is you're the only one that's ever accused me of being a nose breather. Like It's the way you said it, too. It was so hilarious. I, I told my friends afterward. I was like, this guy just looked at me and goes, you're a nose breather, aren't you? And I was like, you mean a mouth breather? A mouth breather. I'm sorry. Yes. A mouth breather. Yeah. 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 You're the first person that ever called me a mouth breather. And so when you called me a mouth breather, I was like, what in the world? And you recommended a book called breathe. Oh, right. Yes. And so I listened to, listened to an audio book and I decided to start changing, right. My habit and to start breathing through my nose. And so you know, prior to that, I was telling you that I had a lot of respiratory issues, lots of that prohibited me from exercising and prohibiting me from running and prohibiting me from doing a lot of things. And it'd been that way for over 20 years. Okay. And so back in earlier this year, back in January, I had a friend that said, Hey, I'm going to run a 10 miler. And I'm thinking, okay, well, how are you going to do that? Well, I'm going to do intervals. She said, and I thought, okay, well, can I do that too? And she said, sure. And so like two minutes running, one minute walking. And that's how you start enable, to enable you to run a 10-mile marathon or 10-mile race. It was a cherry blossom, the DC cherry blossom. And I started doing it. And lo and behold, I only breathed through my nose. And I was able to run a 10-miler for the first time in my life, Les. Then um, the same friend said, hey, I'm doing a half marathon, right? In St. Michael's in May. I was like, can I do it too? And I did that. And so now I'm a runner. So So, I run. Yeah, so I run and I only breathe through my nose. So do you feel that shifting from breathing through your mouth to breathing through your nose has had an effect on the performance side? Is that what you attribute that to allowing you to exercise whereas before you felt like you couldn't? Yeah, so I think that breathing through my mouth right being being a mouth breather <laughs> as i was as i was called i think what it did is it didn't regulate right my hormones in a way that needed to be regulated and i'm sure you know exactly what i'm talking about and which hormones were stimulated or triggered but what it did is it kind of it, it may have compelled me to think that i was in shock or compelled me to think that i needed more oxygen than i did which exasperated my, my lungs and caused me to have some type of respiratory challenges, right? Now, I still have respiratory challenges, but it's not to the level that shuts me down, 
Like I, I ran for seven days straight last week, three miles a day. And my, I was still able to breathe. I was still fine, but I only breathe through my nose. Gotcha. And so you're, are you enjoying those drugs? I mean, those hormones <laughs> running cultivates. I absolutely love it. You know, my youngest son said to me, cause uh, we were on vacation, right. Uh, each day that I ran and he said, you're a different guy in the morning. Like basically stay away from me <laughs> because I was just pumped. I get, you know, the runner's high. I'm fired up at night. I'm no good. And so absolutely the, the runner's high is something I look forward to. It's funny. I told you that you're looking svelte and um, <laughs> I am an idiot. I made the mistake. I bought a shirt from you. You had the, you know, the stand at the farmer's market for beyond rhetoric and I uh, wanted to support. And I was like, Oh, I'll, if we're going to do the podcast. Let me buy a shirt and I'll wear it on the podcast. <laughs> and I look at you and I'm like, what size do you wear? I'm trying to guess my size. And I'm like, in denial of how much weight I've put on <laughs> and to think uh, to think that I was going to wear the same shirt that would fit you. I put it on this morning for this and I'm like, that's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I wish you gave me a look to say, you, you sure this is going to fit you? I should have sized up. So I'll give it that's to my hilarious. son. That's hilarious. No, but, look, uh, babe. Makes me want to get back and run. I haven't been running. I've been, I still exercise regularly, but um, I have a lot of years of running and I just have, very little interest, but then I see how, um, you know, how great you look, mm. you, know, you really look physically, uh, like healthier, more vibrant than when I saw mm. you last. And I assume the running has something to do with yeah. it. Oh, hundred percent. And I appreciate those. And I always tell my friends who are talking about weight loss. And I talk to my sons about this all. I said, listen out for the unsolicited, right. Encouragement. Because those, it's those that you can really trust and believe in. When people you haven't seen for a while, and I was at the gym the other day, and this guy I haven't seen in a while, he looks at me, he goes, "Man, oh my, you 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 you're slimming down." And I thought, yes, that is what. Because you know, if you go around telling people, "Hey guys, I'm on a diet here," and uh, yeah, and this is what I'm doing, then of course they're gonna feel a little compelled to say, "Hey, okay, yeah, yeah, you look great." But when folks just say you're looking svelte, and I appreciate the the the, the word. I love the word. It's, it's the first time it's been used on me in quite a long time. So I appreciate it less. Yeah, it's funny. I checked on our the video from our first conversation and I look like a different person. I'm probably 30 plus pounds lighter during that interview. And uh, I feel pretty good. I but mm -hmm. um, And I feel really strong in some ways. But like when I do pull-ups, like, man, I feel that weight. Yeah. It's yeah, a real yeah. difference. Like when you're picking up weight off the ground, the extra yeah. weight feels really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're picking your own weight up. <laughs> exactly. It feels yeah. a lot. <laughs> um, exactly. So you, that's interesting. I, thank you for sharing about the nose. I do think it's so powerful. When I work at, with people in the gym, the first thing, you know, the first day we're always talking about like uh, lifestyle habits, just kind of get an idea of what their like sleep hygiene is and nutrition. Mm -hmm. But when we go to the teaching of movement, we always start with breathing and we spend yeah. a good amount of time on it. And a lot of folks just don't understand, like they came to the gym, they're ready to do the pushups or the whatever. And, wow. and uh, it's hard for me to convey to them, like how important, how not it's, uh, I say like, this is the most important thing you're going to learn from our experience together. Mm -hmm. and Absolutely. second place is really far away like it's mm -hmm. just so important this is the rhythm of your life 
It's going to be an anchor, a portal to the present moment that you're going to be able to rely on forever. And yeah, it'll affect whether you're hypoxic, whether you, mm-hmm. how you feel, your ability yeah. to perform, exercise and such. So um, thanks for sharing that like yeah. success story. And it speaks thing- to mindful. It speaks to being mindful because there are times when I'm out there and I feel like, oh my goodness, this hill is tough. And then I go, no, 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 no. Regulate, regulate your breathing, right? It's not, you're not going to die, right? Just breathe. And then it helps. It helps me be in the moment. It helps me be present with the activity that I'm doing, which is the whole concept of mindfulness. Yeah, man. Um, Something else you mentioned yesterday that I I wanted to hear more about. Uh, I know you're a a teacher at a high Mm -hmm. school, but you Mm -hmm. also said you started teaching at HEC, which is the local community college. Um, Yes. And you're you're teaching uh, criminal justice there? Yes. Yes. You you mentioned that you have the, you took the, you integrated the kids from the class in the the beyond rhetoric. Can you elaborate that a little bit and talk about what that's meant for the kids? Yes. So that is one of the biggest, you know, one of the biggest highlights of the year. So, you know, we met the farmer's market. So, you know, we're out there pretty much every Saturday, you know, from May and through until November. And one of the contacts I made last year was a professor uh, two years ago. And so she took the card, she walked away, and then she emails me out of the blue and says, hey, you know, can you come and speak to our students? They're criminal justice majors at Howard Community College. Sure. So I went and I spoke to them about what we do, what Beyond Rhetoric does. Then she says, would you like to teach a class, criminal justice? Sure. This is awesome. I haven't taught, you know, uh, post-secondary in a while. Um, and you know, just busy. And so I said, sure. And so I taught a criminal justice class. And then she said, can we do a partnership? And that partnership was an internship. And so we would find students who were interested in going into the juvenile detention centers. And so we found six and they got three credits. And what they had to do was just go into the detention center. They had to read a couple books on juvenile justice and or the criminal justice system. And they had to go in every week in order to earn their um, their credits. And it was phenomenal. So we had six and they went in and they learned and they grew and they gave a presentation at the end of the semester. And without fail, all of them went in there a little afraid, right? Because they didn't know what they were getting into. And then they left feeling more connected and with comments like, these kids are so smart. I couldn't keep up with these kids, right? In terms of chess, right? They're so nice, right? Oh, I love such and such, right? Um, and so that was awesome. So I had them follow us. And so they could either follow us what we're doing or they can create their own. And there are some young ladies that created their own volleyball program. We didn't do volleyball. We didn't offer volleyball as Beyond Rhetoric. And so they created volleyball with the all girls facility. And so for a semester, every Sunday morning at 11, they went down there and played volleyball and I joined them. Um, so with the youth and then the other young ladies, they were all six, the six of them were women, um, uh, college students. They were, went to our chess programs, 
right? You know, at different times. All the, the fe- all the volunteers in the, all in the class were yes. female? You- we will get a male this What semester. happened to the guy? I know, right? The guy's punked out, man. <laughs> so, did, you, did you give him shit for that? Or? I did. You know, okay. it, you know it. I'm like, what's the deals, man? Come on now. I thought you were going to sign up. He's like, yeah, man, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, um, but we do have our first male coming on this, this semester, which I'm really excited about. I got a um, question. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go um, you know, you mentioned earlier, Troy, that it meant something to the youth at the facility when they realized that you weren't getting paid, that the volunteers right. were truly volunteering. So when the students from the community college class came in, that essentially were getting paid three credits, you know, not money, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but you know, they were incentivized. Did that show up in any way to the to the youth, to the kids you're working with? Like, did they pick up on that and respond differently knowing these people that are closer to their age? So you think that they, I would think that there'd be like some connection because they're more of a peer group, but did they, did they feel, um, did they like, did it not feel as meaningful to them? Right. Did you get that sense that they were like, oh, these people are here because they have to, or they are, they're, they're getting a carrot dangled in front of them? Right. Great question. So one of the things that we, 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 so I didn't sense that at all. Um, and I'll tell you how meaningful it is that they know we don't um, get paid. But what I asked the interns to do is to go in and state why they're there. And stated in a way that's youth focused, like we're a criminal justice, I'm in college, but I want to be closer to you all to see how things really are in here. Mm. So what that does contextualize in that way, right? It lets the youth know that they're still, you know, they have agency and they're really the authority. And the youth that are serving or the, you know, the college students they're not going in there like, hey, I know everything, right? Or you're a study subject. They're going in there with the humility of, listen, I really want to know how things are. And I, I, we had this, you know, you know, pre, you know, um, internship conversation is it's like, you are going in there to see how things really are. You can read a lot of books. It's great. But I want you to go and interact with these youth, right? A la, you know, Brian Stevenson's you know, being proximate to those who are suffering. And so we didn't sense that at all. I mean, there were some challenges with their 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 age. A couple of the youth were, you know, they, they hit on them a little bit. How old are you, <laughs> right? You're only 19, you know, that kind of deal. Uh-oh, what you doing when, you, when I get out of here? That kind of deal. And so, you know, we had to squash that really quickly. Um, but they did a good job just blending in. Um, <clears throat> but to the point of how important it is, I'll never forget the one of the biggest compliments I ever received from a youth who said to me, oh yeah, I'm sitting here playing chess with him and he looks at me and he goes, you get paid for this? And I go, no, I, I don't get paid. And he goes, you don't get paid for anything. I said, no, man, this is my church, bro. I come here 8.30 in the morning, bro, to spend time with you guys. You know, I, and I told him, I said, my brother, my brother ended up dead in one of these. And so I'm here. And he looked at me and he goes, that's why I fucks with you. And then he moved his piece. And that was the end of that. And that was one of the biggest compliments <laughs> less I've ever received uh, from a youth in detention. So he, quote unquote, messes with me because he gives me time because I'm there for him. 
there's no 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 bigger compliment that I receive in detention. It uh that's a great story. And um I, I wanna question you on it. I don't want I don't want this to come off as like a a challenge. Um it's funny, at one point in this interview you mentioned I was past tense Christian. Mm-hmm. And then I just heard you say, this is my church. I mean, obviously, right. you know, we all have, uh, self, we all are selfish to right. some, you know, we have to be. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, um, one, like, what's the selfish part of you? Like, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it's hard to do something good for something else. And there's not a part of it that it's like you're making your feel you make you're doing it to feel good. Also, like it feels good to give like right. you give right. any kind of gift. You give a dog a bone. It feels rewarding right. to you, even though, mm-hmm. yeah. the, you know, the, the dog's not saying thank you or whatever. They're taking right. um, you, you, any kind of kind gesture. It's not all just for the other person. You know, there's yeah. a lot of. um value that we get out of it so i wanted to i guess two part what do you you know what do you see yourself when you practice the self-awareness of what you're getting out of this i'd like to hear more about why you consider this your church Mm -hmm. and also like has this process um if you want to touch on why at one point you felt christian as if it was past tense has that changed and if so why yeah that's good. These are multiple point questions, and I, I love them all. Um, and this, this is great that we're doing this on a Sunday morning, too, <laughs> because <laughs> it feels extra spiritual. Gotcha. Okay, so there's a couple of quotes that really, really helped me in terms of my journey, um, and especially with this. You know, there's a guy named E.M. Forster, right? He's the guy that wrote, I think, Room with a View, a Room with a View. He goes, how do I know I am until I see what I do? And then that piggybacks off of what Aristotle said some 2,300 years before him. And he says, virtues are formed in man by his doing the action, hence beyond rhetoric, right? I'll never forget, you know, reading the book of James when I was a Christian, and yes, it's past tense, Um, to the chagrin of some people out there, some of your listeners, they're like, oh, he's a heathen. Um, So (laughs) I know, right? So in the book of James, it says true religion is taking care of widows and orphans. And James was apparently Jesus's brother. And that always stuck with me. And he he says, he also, James also says, you show me your faith by what you say. I'll show you my faith by what I do. And I was like, James is my man. (laughs) Okay. True religion is taking care of widows and orphans, right? Basically, this is real here to James. Like go out there and take care of people who need you. That's what real religion is, right? That's how I feel like I'm going to be judged. You know, in the Quran, it states uh, that um, all actions will be judged by their intentions. And so what I want is to live a life that's based on the doing piece. You know, you ask about the selfish part. Yes. I don't think that, you know, I, I think I, you know, have long since given up on the, you know, the concept that altruism actually exists right? That there's such a thing, a pure altruism. Um, But I don't know, maybe somebody can find it. But there's this book that I highly recommend. It's called The Wonder Drug. And 
um, we, 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 we profiled it on our, um, we do a newsletter every month. And so it was one of the books that we profiled. And basically it's a scientific way of showing how compassion and altruism is the best thing for us, <laughs> right? Once again, I highly recommend it. It's, it's written by two MDs. One guy I believe is an MD, JD, MD, and he also has his Juris Doctorate, so he's a lawyer. Um, and their goal is to show that this is good for us. Like compassion isn't just something we don on for other folks. This is actually good for us. It increases our, our health. It increases the longevity of our lives. It increases, you know, it lessens our, you know, our blood pressure. It so many reasons, right? Why we should be. One of the things that struck me in the book, Les, is he said that a lot of people have this concept that you're on this continuum of being other interested or self-interested. And he said, there's this, this guy, I think his name is Adam Grant, no relation, um, this psychologist who said, no, that's, that's the wrong way of looking at it. You've got to look at it as there's the, the other interest continuum, meaning you can have a low self-interest, right? Or, or a low other interest or a high other interest. So a high other interest is you're really invested in other people. A low other interest is you're not, right? You can have a low self-interest or a high self-interest, right? High self-interest people, self-interested people are egomaniacs. Low self-interest are probably, you know, um, probably discouraged and depressed. But what he said is that you have to, the, the most successful people are people that have both high self-interest and high other interest because they know how to not be a doormat, right? Because if you have high other interests and low self-interest, then you're a doormat. You're just doing whatever the people want. Mm. Um, and so I think I have high self-interest or higher than average self-interest and in higher than average other interest. Gotcha. And so that's what puts me on that. Um, and some people are pathological altruists, right? Another term from that book, um, that, you know, despite, you know, all indicators, they're so unhealthily focused on other people that it's to their own detriment and their own needs. I'm not that guy. I serve. And after I serve, I come home to my sons and we hang out. We go to movies, we chill, right? I go on dates occasionally, <laughs> occasionally. Um, I work full time, right? I, so it's not, everything is not about service. I'm credentialed as I shared with you earlier, right? Um, so no, everything isn't about serving, but not everything is, is also about uh, myself. And so I want to strike a good balance. That's why the, what we do at Beyond Rhetoric is I said, hey, what are you good at? Can you do that for an hour a week with youth and detention, right? This book, you know, that, that I, once again, that I highly recommend, I'm not getting paid to push their book, but um, it said that scientific research shows that a hundred hours a year is the optimal number of hours for you to start getting right the, the, the rewards for altruism or the reward for compassion. Okay. A hundred hours a year. We ask for just an hour a week, which is half of that, Right. So 100 hours a year is like truly 1% of your time. That's it. So if you gave two hours a week, that would be your 100 hours given to anything beyond yourself. 
So what I hope that we do as middle-class folks, specifically, those are typically the audience that I'm speaking to, middle-class folks, is just serve. You, you're blessed, man, You or you're favored, or you know, let's say it another way, you're fortunate. And so since you're fortunate, since you've been taken care of, relatively speaking, I know we're not all perfect, but relatively speaking, um, since you're taken care of, then you can do something for other people. One hour, two hours a week, let's get it done. And then, then finally, you know, I remember that I'm growing in this. Less, I'm not naturally compassionate or naturally altruistic. I'm not. You know, Gandhi said compassion is a muscle that gets stronger with use. And so um, I'm just trying to get more compassionate. And that's why I do. I'm in the doing phase to help me become more. That's great, man. I'm, I'm, it's inspiring. You got my head spinning. I used to work with these at the gym. I used to work with these kids every year. The local high school would reach out to me and um, I would work with a couple, I guess like special needs kids. And it was very rewarding mm -hmm. and um, yeah. you know, you grow a little attached and then they'd be gone. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and with the pandemic, they, they shut that down. And it hasn't really picked up again. And it's like, I'm I'm hearing you and getting inspired and I'm looking at my life and my av time availability, which is kind of high right now. My yeah. kid's not needing me much. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it, you're, I feel like you're holding, you're helping me hold a mirror up to myself from an angle that is needed. Yeah, to, yeah. Um, to, you know, get up and contribute more than I am. Um, well, it's what it's what I went through when I read the book, you know, <laughs> Just Mercy, you know, as I shared with you in our last meeting, you know, I was just binge watching television, you know, I was just like, you know, dating a lot. And it's like, you know what, I appreciate good, good shows. And I appreciate the great company, you know, of a, of a beautiful woman. But this is not me. Like, there's something that's missing. Right. And so what was missing was that purpose piece, was that there's something out there that I can actually contribute to. And so it makes me feel right better. And I think that by doing all those things, going out there dating, and I was trying to lift myself up in some way, right? And Booker T. Washington says, you know, if you want to lift yourself up, lift up someone else, right? Like clearly just lift up someone else. And that helps us. You know, we're in a, a country, we don't have the highest suicide rate in this country, but my goodness, right? A lot of people are depressed and, you know, drug overdoses and, you know, it's challenging. Well, one of the reasons why we're so self-focused, it's like, take some of that time, just some and give it to others. And so I feel like a superhero, Less when I walk away from the detention center. And not only that, when I spend time with the other folks that are serving, people in my tribe. I'll call them. I feel like a superhero. And then I go to work and I hang out with my kids. And, and then it's just, that's the balance that I hope to have. This is, once again, this is all volunteer, this organization, uh, this 501c3. So can I, yeah, I, um, I want to hear more about, and I want to be a conduit for you so that you could reach more people that could maybe help out, whether uh, financially um, or their time. But I, I want to, uh, go back to the topic we're just talking about for a little bit more insight from the kids view. I'm very interested and curious about how the youth in these facilities respond to um, really 
the way society is presented to them while they're in um you know this confined space it's like this environment that is just in my when i think about it in my it like doesn't feel right in my blood right right like kids are in this situation and um when you told the kid you were working with when you were playing chess and he asked you if you're getting paid and like maybe he didn't believe you the first time and you're like really and, and then when he gets it and you say that no this is my church right how do you interpret what he thinks about hearing that when he hears like are they learning do you think that in that moment the kid across the chess table from you mm-hmm. is learning something about uh life for them by hearing that you're doing this as as a need for yourself like when you say it's your church when you tell him it's your church you're telling him like i need to do this for me in to some way like i need this mm-hmm. i'm not just here for you this is my medicine do you think he picks up on that and learns from that so that's a good question well so I don't know if I would characterize it the same way you do in terms of like, this is for me and my medicine. Although that may be implied because when I used to go to church, I never looked at it as this is for me. I actually thought about it as a community. I thought about it as a, a part and I was just an epitome, right? I am a part of this larger community that I go to every week and that I spend time with. And these are the people that I know. And I never looked at it as something I was getting out of it personally. Never, I don't think. Um, And so when I think of church or when I think of a gathering, when I think of my students who go to the mosque, right? Um, Or I had a couple Jewish principals, right? Um, And they would go to the temple. Um, When I think of that, I think of something you're participating in, but not hierarchically and not selfishly. Now, so do we get stuff out of it? We do, but it's it never dawned on me the entire time that I was a churchgoer for 10 years that and that was in my adult years. I went, you know, as a child, I went with my parents, but um, in my adult years for 10 years, um, that I was getting something out of it for me. So I don't know if that communicates to the youth. Like, so the way that I say it was, no, this is what, this is how I come together. This is how I break bread, right? This is how I take communion. And so um, what's funny is, so So you're telling him essentially like, no, you're my people. Like, there you go. You're my people. You're my people. There you go. Gotcha. And that's why he said, this is why I messed with you. And he dapped me up and then he moved his chess piece. What's funny is that I went just to provoke a conversation with the girls. I had left there that day and I'd gone to the all girls facility. And when I went to the all girls facility um, to play chess as well, I asked him, I said, hey, the guy was asking me about why, you know, whether I got paid. I was like, why did they, why did he ask that? And I knew the answer, but just to provoke a discussion. And one of the young ladies says, he want to know if you're real or not. I was like, what's that mean? She's like, if you're getting paid, like you got to be here. And I thought it makes sense. 
They want to know that people care about them less. They, that's what they want to know. And that's what we all want to know, right? That's what we all want to know in relationships, right? Did people actually care about us? You know, I just left one job and one school and I'm at another school, right? Um, I was at that school for eight years, right? After a while, I didn't feel valued. So I just, I put in a transfer card for the first time in eight years. And so why? I didn't feel like they cared. And that's really what it boils down to in relationships. And kids are no different. They just want to know that we care. Right. Yeah. We're all just big kids. Yeah. Come on, man. <laughs> you know it. Well, congrats on your new chapter that you're about to start. School's, oh, I thank you. School year is about to start, I guess, you know this it. week. Or for yes, you guys. indeed. Yeah. Teachers go back tomorrow and then the, the young ones come back a week later. Are you in the same county or? Uh, no, I, I live in Howard County, Maryland. You're, you know, for um, those that are not here, uh, there are like 23 counties in the state of Maryland. I live in Howard, but I teach in Prince George's, which is, I used to do a 45 minute to an hour commute one way. Now I only 23 minutes. So, nice. yeah, so that's nice. So that's a, that's a boon. Pay cut. I took a pay cut, <laughs> but yeah, I know. Right. Uh, but uh, quality of life, man, quality yeah. of life. Closer, closer to home, um, home when my son gets home from high school. And that's so, worth a lot. Oh, my, my, my. He won't, he won't, he won't like that. <laughs> no, <it's> like, <laughs> when I'm sitting, when I'm sitting on a sofa, legs crossed, right? So how was your day? <laughs> you know, he's gonna, he's like, dag on it, right? That's funny. So, yeah. Um, any, so anything else new on the horizon for you that you want to chat about before I let you go? I know I've, uh, we're, we're pushing the time limit here. Yeah. So, yeah. So with beyond rhetoric, we've got a lot of good stuff. I mean, so now we have a solid five programs we have, um, which means five different volunteers who go in consistently. We have a basketball program, right? We have a chess program. Um, we have a fatherhood program. Um, we have two new programs. One's called cash flow. I don't know if you remember, there's a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. Got a guy named Robert, I think, Kiyosaki or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he created a board game. So there's this guy in Baltimore who approached us and said, hey, we want to, I want to teach the kids about entrepreneurialism and how to invest and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. I said, well, we don't, the way, we don't roll like teaching the kids. It has to be a backdoor kind of teaching. So you have to do something because the kids don't want to just sit and listen to you lecture. Right. They just don't. So he said, well, there's this board game. And so he goes in every week, right? Sunday morning at nine o'clock. And he plays this game called cash flow with the kids. And the, the goal of cash flow is getting out of the rat race, teaching kids investment and entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurialism skills. I contacted the cash flow company. And I said, hey, can you guys donate your board game to us? Because we're working with kids. And they said, absolutely. They sent their board game to us. And that's what they play with. Now, here's the catch. Before we did this, what I encouraged Department of Juvenile Services, I said, we want to be able to reward these kids, right? And so we're going to give them a $100 um, custodial stock account. And so they have to do between six and nine weeks of this game. And then we give them a custodial stock account that they cannot cash out of until they're 21 years old. Oh, that's awesome. And so, 
Yes. And so we are fine. We finally have our first graduate. He's a kid I'll call J-Dub. And he's been at this game for a while and he gets it. Now he understands the concept of investing. Right. And so uh, I'm working with the Department of Juvenile Services to set up that stock account for him as we speak. Um, so that's very exciting. Um, we did a stock market game with uh, the detention centers that are the furthest west in Maryland. Um, and then one of the young ladies from that internship program asked to stay on. She just says, I just want to I just want to keep keep going. Right. I love these nice. girls. And so she's 19 years old, our youngest intern or our youngest volunteer. And she goes every Sunday, she drives about an hour to do friendship bracelets with the young ladies. I didn't even know what that was. She had to send me a YouTube video and she goes, the girls will love it. So as she's doing the friendship bracelets, the girls, the walls drop and then they start talking because, you know, we're not allowed to ask them about their charges and any specific information because they're still minors. So, but if they tell us things, that will be fine. And so they'll drop, they'll say, yeah, I got to go to court on Thursday. I don't think, I don't think my lawyer is going to be there. They just start talking. We could ask them questions. Well, what do you mean your lawyer is not going to be there? And then the relationship start. So from this, those two uh, uh, volunteers, one guy's name is uh, Jamoke Jinyami. Um, he does the cash flow game. And then Melissa DeLeo, She's the one that does the, the bracelets. They both are forming relationships. And out of those relationships, we're now with the Department of Juvenile Services trying to get them to mentor some of the youth that they've engaged with. So now that's the next phase of Beyond Rhetoric, the mentorship. And we talked about that last time, but now it's coming, is being crystallized. Because the last, oh, time we last time we talked, Les, we were virtual because of the pandemic. Now we are in, in person, in the flesh, um, and so we've bumped into some challenges, right? Um, trying to get everything started and get everything consistent. Um, uh, but we've been, we've been going strong. And so that's the exciting part. The other new stuff is we had an auction last year. Um, and we had a Shakespeare fundraiser. You know, one of the things that I share with you is we like to tap into people's talents and go, Hey, what are you good at? Can you serve the youth? Well, there was a guy named uh, Jeffrey Owens. Um, I don't know if you used to watch the Cosby show when you, when yeah. you were younger. Uh, his name is Elvin on the Cosby show. Um, his real name is Jeffrey Owens. Well, he came down to the state of Maryland to give 90 minutes of Shakespeare at the Reginald F. Lewis Museum of African-American History and Culture. And he said, all proceeds goes, goes to Beyond Rhetoric. That was him using his talent as an actor to serve the youth. He didn't go into the detention centers, but he gave his time and we collected the donations so that we can further our cause. Um, we also, I get really excited. So please cut me off if I'm going too long. No, um, do thing. We were um, so encouraged to be able to partner with the Baltimore School of the Arts. We had a young kid named Zion uh, Ginyami. Um, he, the son of that guy who uh, serves to with the cash flow game. Um, he is uh, an actor and in the uh, Baltimore School for the Arts, and a guy named Ian Taylor, also an actor for Baltimore School of the Arts. Well, we contacted the Baltimore School of the Arts so that these kids can get service learning hours, which is a really big thing in the state of Maryland, service learning hours um, as high schoolers, but they can also learn from Jeffrey. And um, some of the comments were like, this is a masterclass. Working with him, rehearsing with him was like a masterclass in Shakespeare. It was amazing. Um, that event was great. 
And then the auction, um, we had a great auction. We asked a couple actors to perform uh, a scene from the documentary Central Park Five. For your listeners who are not aware, Central Park Five was um, a case about five kids, both, you know, they're, they're all Black and Hispanic, who were accused wrongfully of rape. Uh-huh. Um, yes, in like 1989. And they were sent to prison and sent to jail. And they were all innocent. And years later, uh, DNA proved them innocent. Also, the guy who raped the woman came forward and said, and he was already in jail. And he said, yeah, I did that. And so they were exonerated. So they're known as exonerated five. Um, There's actually six of them, but um, they call them the exonerated five. Um, There was a scene from there that was actual from the, you know, and I can send it, you know, to you if if you need to see it. Then an actual interrogation of a youth that was so, so, oh my goodness. It was, it was heart-wrenching how, uh, compromised this youth was and how basically they got him to uh, admit to something that he did not do. So during the auction, I had a couple actors, uh, Eliana Lutz and Spencer Grant, my son, act that scene out where the assistant district attorney um, is um, interrogating the youth and the youth is having to lie about his guilt, even though he was innocent. So there's so much that we're doing on that. We would love to do more. I want to do a 5K fundraiser, but we're an all-volunteer you know, organization. We need somebody to step up and say, I can organize that for you, right? Um, and so that, you know, there's a lot of good things that we're doing. Um, and so, yeah, please, anyone, please contact us. Uh, we need your donations. We need volunteers. Um, and we need strong minds to help us uh, move this mission forward. And what is the best way beyond rhetoric.org? Yes, absolutely. They can get in touch with us. You know, I had an epiphany about a year or so ago. Um, our vice president um, of beyond rhetoric, he sits on the board as vice president. Uh, his name is Collies Hall. He does so much. He does a fatherhood program, but he's also trying to help get their uh, sound engineering program going with the Baltimore City Juvenile Justice Center uh, so that the kids can actually make music while they're there. But oh, it takes sweet. a lot of takes a lot of technical skills. And so Khalees is helping with that. Um, but we had a meeting um, a year or so ago with a guy who was basically telling us all that we needed to do is beyond rhetoric. And you, you should do this. You should be doing that. You should be doing this. And Khalees stopped him and he said, hey, what are you willing to do for beyond rhetoric? And the guy was quiet. And since that, that time, Les, I've really established a different stance. And that stance is, we are an all-volunteer organization still. Um, what we do comes from the heart. We don't have the quantitative data to get all the grants that we need. We just don't. Um, we have a lot of qualitative data. We have a lot of anecdotes. Um, but what we do is we interface with the kids. One day, we will have that quantitative data that will make grant writers say, oh, yeah, so this percentage of the kids that interact with Beyond Rhetoric are now completing high school. We don't have that now. But we have the humility as an organization to know where we are. And we never overstate right, our abilities and we say where we are. So um, beyondrhetoric.org, we need your help. We need your mind. If you have an idea, please don't email us and tell us what we should do. <laughs> <laughs> what I would like you to do is say, you know what? Here's a great idea and I can do that for you. There's a guy named Robert Holder, uh, doctor. I think he's an algorithmic engineer. I don't even know what that is, right? This guy's so smart. 
But he came up to us and he said, listen, I can't do the basketball. I don't have the personality to engage with the youth like you do. But I have other skills. So he decided to help us write grants. So um, that's how he is giving to uh, Beyond Rhetoric. So please, if you want to contact us, yes, there's a lot that we can be doing and growing in. Um, our records are straight. And that's what we are really good at, making sure that every dollar is counted and accounted for. Um, but we we just we're still all volunteers. So we need your help. We need your, you know, your volunteer hours and we need your donations. Well, thank you, Troy. Thank you for mm -hmm. taking the time to talk with me today and the listeners out there. Always grateful for your listening. And I encourage you to at the very least check out the website and learn more and if you feel compelled to help out then um you know let that part of your inside manifest and, Come on. Um, and spread that love 100 um thank you troy yes Andrew. thank you les and i hope hopefully we will do this again yes man absolutely have a great day everybody you too Thanks again for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I sure did. If you live local to Maryland, then um, I'm sure Troy would love to hear from you if you want to connect. And if you don't live local and you want to contribute or help out in any way you can, then please check out the website and um, you know give what feels right to you. My mom always taught me that if you can give, you should give. And if you can't, you should not. So be responsible and make sure you're taking care of yourself. But it is a uh, fantastic cause, and it sounds like um, they have the right people involved to really make the world a better place with your contribution. So I encourage you to follow your heart with that one. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed. <laughs>